Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. We are powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is our eddy in the rushing waters of local journalism. We are glad that you're taking some of your time to listen to us chat with the people who shape our local community. Hi, I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source, and I'm here with Donna Britt. We are have the pl- privilege today to be talking to Emerson Levy. Emerson is an American attorney and politician serving as a member of the Oregon House of Representatives for the 53rd District, which covers the north side of Bend, Tumalo, Sisters, and the southwestern part of Redmond. Her campaign focused on working families and healthy communities with the priorities of affordable housing, expanded child care options, and safe, resilient schools. She assumed office on January 9, 2023. She championed for Alyssa's Law, which was passed as part of House Bill 5014, which includes $2.5 million for Oregon schools to install panic alarm systems to alert first responders to all types of emergencies to keep schools safer. The law mandates that all public elementary and secondary school buildings be equipped with silent panic alarms that directly notify law enforcement. Alyssa's law is named in memory of Elisa Alhadef, a 14-year-old student who lost her life during the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in 2017. Emerson, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Probably too kind. (laughs) You had a... uh, Kind of a crazy, wild uh, legislative session, uh, but Alyssa's law was a pretty, pretty big accomplishment. And I know, on top of just passing it, it, you also managed to get it funded, which I was kind of the big question mark that was out there. I think as it was moving through, um, can you first tell listeners what Alyssa's law is and why you found it important to take this on as a first-year legislator? Absolutely. So Alyssa's law came to me actually through Alyssa's mom. We met through um, different kind of different people and our worlds connected. So I was working on this before I even came into the legislature. And uh, it's just such a passion for me that our kids be safe in school. And But I'm also a pragmatist at heart. And so I thought, what can we do that's realistic, that we can get everyone behind, that we can do now, that's cost effective and doesn't make our schools look like a prison. That was really important to me is that we, you know, the the kids weren't going through metal detectors. They weren't doing all these things, but like, how are we increasing safety? And especially when you look at all of the communication reports that come out after these, after these horrific, I call them bad guy events, just because you never know when little ears are around. I call them bad guy events. They all said the same thing, a failure of communication within the first 30 seconds, within the first three minutes, the radios failed. Uh, the or the radios couldn't even go as far as they thought they could, or they didn't right. work at all in the case of Parkland, that, you know, uh, the school safety officer was was hiding uh, in, in Parkland. And to be clear, I don't I don't think it's the school safety resources officer's job to block bullets. I think it's their job to build relationships so that we these events don't happen. Um, and so and if you look at Texas communication failures, like every single one of these, have the same communication failures because you think you know what you're doing, but then an emergency actually happens mm. and you need not to have to think. Right. Um, you just need to be able to move quickly and you need to be able to get a message out over the entire campus very quickly, within, within 30 seconds. Those first 30 seconds are the most precious. And so I think when people hear panic alarm, they think of like something under your 
under your desk that you right. push and like the FBI runs in. Yeah. <laughs> that is like an old school version, but maybe the the concept is the same, but the technology is quite different. Well, that because that's exactly what I was imagining: <laughs> the big red button sitting exactly. by the teacher's desk. Yes. And, yes. Right. It, it's not funny, but it's making yeah. me laugh. Like the right. Staples button, right. just like right. that. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that's what a lot of people thought. And I think people thought I was kind of crazy thinking we were going to hardwire the schools because, I mean, that's millions and millions of dollars. Uh, but this is on your phone or it can be a badge if you don't have access to Wi-Fi. I should have brought my samples. Um, and what it does is so it's on anyone in authority phone so not the kids uh this has been implemented in four or five states and i think the good thing about that is we've learned from them wow do not give it to students <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's too much of a heavy thing for our students to have on their phone but also can be really misused sure um so anyone in authority from you know our, the janitor would have it if they choose the principal uh, everyone it's on their phone and on their chromebooks too so it can get past a, a, a password or things like so you don't always have to have your phone on you right um so how it works, and again, there are several vendors on the market, so there's a lot of different ways in, that you can make this happen, mm -hmm. but he, here's just an example of one vendor. Um, so it's on your phone. Um, it's $1,200 a school, so very cost-effective. Um, and there's four buttons. One says fire, one says emergency, one has a picture of a gun, and then one says behavior. And so you hold down whichever button is for a second and a half. That second and a half is important because we've learned with one second you have a false alarm. Right. Um, once that was fixed, there's no more false alarms. And so what happens is you that, that person clicks the button, and what happens all at the same time is it starts a call to 911, but the 911 gets an exact geolocation. Mm. And we've already talked to the Deschutes County 911, and I went and I saw, and I really learned from them of how we need to integrate it um, mm. so that it's front and center on their screen, too, because right. they have like eight screens up. So the exact geolocation of that person making the call because that's a big thing people don't know where people are in parkland the video was 20 minutes delayed oh so like these things you don't think of like right. keep happening sure so it gives a exact geolocation and then it alerts every single person in authority because think how big a school is right um at the exact same time the second you push that button um and then you customize it how you want um, so you can who you want to get it, but also if you choose not to be a person that can push the button, you still get the alert. I thought that was I think that's really important because they don't. Everyone shouldn't have to carry that pressure. It's a choice. Yeah. Um, I, in hearing you describe it, it just seems, it seems like one of those moments where you're like, well, of course this ought to be in place. Yeah, of course why, this why is wasn't a system, this already right? <laughs> and I can imagine the challenges, the technology challenges when you come up, especially if you're talking about even within a Oregon Oregon schools, let alone nationwide of, you know, what does a 911 screens look like? The protocol, the how, who gets notified? How do you notify them? Can you notify them by law? Things like that. So pretty amazing. Yeah, and the uh, my... The other great part about the app is, you know, 80, 90, between 80 and 90 percent of the app is actually used for kids having anaphylactic shock, mm -hmm. seizures, and students uh, with athletic events having heart issues. Um, and the, you can also customize it because you know, my daughter's school, she's in elementary school, there's no one at her school that has um, diabetes. And if you don't have diabetes, you don't have a full-time nurse at school because of the nurse shortage. And so do you know where that EpiPen is? And so yeah, right. it goes out to every teacher, and again, each school can customize it how they want, that is CPR certified and who has access to an EpiPen. 
Wow. Fantastic. So it's just a, how can we respond faster? And then for our kids having a behavioral issue, you can also program it to say, don't change schools. Like if a kid is having an anxiety attack, if you're going to switch classes, that's only going to make it worse if it's in the middle of right. a, a a school day. So just wait, let calm, calm, calm our students, and then we'll change classes. I, I'm, I'm impressed that this is going to happen, and it got funded. So it got funded. every school in the state. Every school in right. the state um, with 50 or more students. Again, if it doesn't quite work for them, we have, we have carve-outs for people. Um, I It is a mandate, but it is a flexible mandate. We want the schools who this works for, for them to have this option. Maybe what, for what, some rural schools it, it won't work. What wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it work? <clears throat> what do you um, hear? What do you hear about like, because when I hear this, like I said, it's like, it, if you have a phone, you definitely, and you're in a position of authority, you definitely want this app on your phone. I mean, that's what we're hearing. And but if you tell people that it's, uh, you know, where we're saying you need to do this, it's funded, um, but you know, there are carve outs. Yeah, more people want to do it. People sure. don't like to be told what to do. That's yeah. like the Oregon sure. thing is, right. don't tell me what to do. I know so- this is an incredible app that could save tons of lives, but. Yeah, no pressure. Uh, I I want to be the last one on board. So (laughs) what is the timeline? Is there a timeline? There is. So um, what we're doing right now is the rulemaking, which is done by the executive. So it kind of leaves us. Um, And what we're going to do is probably follow Texas, which is a grant program. You just say, hey, we want this and you get the check. But it's better for the state to do a couple contracts with a couple vendors. Just brings it's just economies of scale. It brings down that cost a lot. Um, And then they can pick. Uh, I know Portland Public Schools were, were looking at the badge system, which is you just you don't have to have mobile service. You just double click. It will tell the, the the office where that person is that needs help. And if you keep on clicking, it automatically calls 911. That's good for rural schools that don't have good Wi-Fi coverage, mm-hmm. but it's also more expensive. Uh, it's actually a lot more expensive. It's eight thousand dollars. I would want to. <clears throat> I would want to know. Again, I hate to come back to the opt outs, but like. If you're a parent and you're sending your kid to that school and you're aware that this is technology that would be available mm-hmm. to you um, and someone's going to opt out of that kind of uh, I have a safety feeling protocol. nobody will. Yeah. Ultimately. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah, yeah. But That's it, probably a good point. Because I think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, it'll be ultimately because of the way the state is, I think, driven by the people who will say, hey, yeah, we do want this. Let's figure out what, what the concern is or why we think it wouldn't work in our school, and they'll push for it, it seems like. Yeah. Emerson, what was, your, um, what was the vote on, on, on the bill? Um, well, so it was interesting. Because of the walkout, um, we, I went to the speaker and I said, this is the most important thing to me. This is why I came here. Um, I'll let go of the bill. Um, will you put it in a budget note? And he's a smart guy, and he knew how to do it. And so that's why it's a budget note. And we were able to take basically the bill and put it in a budget note. Okay. So we'll come back in the next session, or in the short session, and just um, uh, put it in official statute. But it is there in the education budget. Um, Because otherwise, with the walkout, we didn't have the time. And I wasn't going to let it go. Sure. So we put it in the budget note, budget note three on the education budget. Um, so that secured the funding. And that is truly the hard part because right. we actually had um, – it was all but two people had signed on as a bill sponsor. And so it's the most bipartisan bill um, in the in the House. That was great. It's good to hear. And what was timeline again? When do you – once this is, comes out and the funding's available, what do you imagine or what's, what's your vision for 
when you see this implemented across Oregon? My guess is next school year. There are other schools that that already are getting a leg up. So Mm -hmm. Ben Lapine was taking meetings back in March with people, and they were just saying, we just need the funding. We've already done the work. Um, And so it just depends on the school. That's great. But our our hope is by by this spring that schools can start um, deciding what vendor they want to choose from the couple that are available and then what, you know, who do they want to be on their contact list, those kind of things. So in in addition to this and in light of what we just went through in the legislature, there's other measures that were passed by Oregon voters like Measure 114, stalled in court. And you are a legal, you're from the legal profession. what would you aim to work on in the next arena around something like this? I think that's a really good question. I think, if I'm just being really honest, ballot measures are really tough for the legislature because we go through a rigor- rigorous legal process right. for everything. And we have a whole team of people, not only just a team of people, but teams of experience um, to say, this will work, this won't work, Um uh, or, you know, we can bring in law enforcement. And so it's just more of a collaborative thing where mm-hmm. a ballot measure. Uh, they're dropped on you. They're dropped on us. And we don't have we don't have control over the wording and things like that. So it's really hard. And so right. I guess that's not the wording I would have chose. Right. Um, but I always say what and I say this with 110 too. what were the voters trying to tell us? Like, what is their top line value? Mm-hmm. For me, that means they're sick and tired of the gun violence in this country. That, that's what they're telling us. The method that the ballot measure was pretty pretty legally complicated, I would say. Sure. But, like, what can we do? And I actually thought House Bill 2005 was that to me. So that was the our gun safety bill. And, you know, it was pared down in the, um, in the walkout. But it was a really practical, a really practical bill. And I, I think that shows because we had – people who were gun owners and th- like people on this committee you would not really think would mm-hmm. mesh together. Mm-hmm. And they came up with something I thought was incredibly reasonable. Um, what all that came out of it was, you know, no more untraceable guns or ghost guns, right. um, <laughs> which just honestly complies with federal law. Like, And I think it's pretty common sense that we don't want just guns flying around that are unserialized. Um, that, I, th- that I would think fair. we could agree on that. That seems like yeah. you could get some bipartisan support around it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think people think that's pretty reasonable. I, I think the sticking point was that 19 and you had to be you know, over 21 to buy an automatic assault, assault rifle. But when you look at the statistics, the people who have committed the most crimes with assault rifles in our schools are almost exclusively under 21. Mm. Wow. So you get like the impact. Right. Um, I think if the vote if that something that simple went to the voters, it'd be mm-hmm. very different. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what would you? How would you talk about your experience as a freshman legislator? Legislator, do you think were there things that you weren't expecting? Um, what surprised you the most? Um, I loved it so much. Would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> Did you learn your lesson? Did I learn my lesson? Well, now I feel like I really know what I what I'm doing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do it again, and I feel very loyal to the people in House District 53. You know, I was outspent, uh, not invested in by my party because I thought it was too much of a a stretch in this difficult year. And so I am here only by the grace of the people, and I will stay with them as long as as they'll have me. Um, But what I learned is all-consuming. Like, it is 
from morning to late at night. Um, but it's great. I mean, it's wonderful. Like for someone who loves policy, um, all I knew was the campaign side. And it's so different. Mm. And I think I like the policy side far more than the campaign side. They're you like two, doing the work. I like doing the work. They're two completely different skill sets, um, but yet required of the same person. Um, but, I mean, it, no, it was kind of wonderful. I mean, I know, like, the, the walkout was awful, and I really don't want to do that again. But for me, it was kind of a dream job, to be honest. What do you – I mean, for someone who – you know you're you're new and you got quite a lot of moxie to take a bill and and push it all the way through especially in the in those environments what what do you say to other people interested in getting into politics who have similar aspirations you know i i say just go for it <laughs> i i mean just swing for the fences that's always been my my motto you know strive the worst anyone ever can tell you is no. Um, that's, I guess, you know. And also, you don't have to run for office to make change either. I would I would go in clear-eyed that it is a full-time commitment. You might even lose money on the job. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're not going to make any money. It costs a lot to do the job. It's an incredible burden on your family. But if it's what you love, it's wonderful. But if you can't make that kind of travel, like school board or things like that are really great. But there's also plenty of ways to serve the community outside of that when you when you look back at it uh, I mean freshman uh I know you ran did you run you ran once before mm -hmm. and then your second time you were successful and you ran in a pretty conservative district yes. I mean it was not tilting your way no. to you when you stepped in there um, I mean you had a pretty pretty good job of you needed to do to convince voters um personally, as you stepped into that role, I mean, was it what you had expected? I mean, I know there's a lot of vitriol, there's a lot of social media now. It's, I mean, it's a different campaign environment. And I do hear people sh who say, gosh, I'd love to be a politician, but I, I can't stand in the ring and, and do that. But you did. I think it's really hard to get beat up. That's true. Um, it was hard on my daughter and her friends with, with like the commercials. Mm -hmm. um, that was the hardest part and I privately was de dealing with cancer at the same time um, at my race I didn't find out I was cancer free until the day after I won the election wow. so I had a really I think solid perspective because I was going through that privately at the same time I mean I, I told people once I had to because I had to cancel a debate because I was in the ICU well I was in the ICU I was they couldn't find a spot for me. Um, so I was in the ER. Uh, but, uh, and I had to come clean then um, because I just, I didn't want to be perceived as weak. And I mm -hmm. knew that I was already on such, being under 40, being a mom, I just knew I just didn't have that leverage with to say like, oh, I'm fighting cancer, but it's fine. Like <laughs> it was just an aggressive melanoma. Right. I was able to just take care of it. It was it was fine. I had a terrible reaction to the anesthesia, which was my big setback. But, you know, it, it was a lot to be dealing with at once just because there's so many appointments. But I didn't have to go through radiation or chemo or anything like that. It was just a lot at once is all it's I'll It's incredible say. to hear you downplay I this. It's I mean, like, right? not really a big yeah. deal at all. I, you can under, I can under, <laughs> I see, I'm getting a window into why you won this election yeah. given uh, your... Well, perspective. I think other people have a more difficult cancer journey than I did. My timing was just truly terrible. <laughs> um, 
but but like you said it gave you perspective oh I had such a good perspective so when when, yeah. when all the mudslinging was going on you were able to maybe let it roll off a little Absolutely. easier um, because I did have this really aggressive form of cancer that my husband actually caught and told me to because it's, it's a skin cancer and I'd had it for a really long time I guess I just didn't think it was that big of a deal and he's like, I don't like the way that looks. And he was like, I actually have a dermatologist appointment on Monday, which it seems like like a year to get. He's like, take mine. And I was like, I'm not going to take it. I'm in the middle of a campaign. And my husband's a very chill guy. And he's like, no, you're you're taking this appointment. Mm-hmm. And so I took it. And then, um, yeah, found out I had melanoma. But if it was really close to um, leaving the area. So I guess it becomes stage two at point eight. And I was at point seven six. Wow. So it's kind of hard wow. to be mad at anything when yeah. you get that lucky. Right. So I just had such perspective that no matter what happens from here, I'm going to be okay. And it let things wash off in a way that I think it ended up being like a mitzvah to me because I, it kept me grounded in, in a very different way than I Thanks for expected. sharing that. That's incredible. So what has the feedback been from your your constituents as far as, like, the volume of calls you get or, or how, how are people interacting with you? And is it different? Because you represent, to me, it's mm-hmm. a very unique yeah. uh, district because it's it's Park Bend and Redmond and Sisters. So you are the issues different in those different They're completely. Locations? I mean, you know, I think we all, like, want to, like, live in Central Oregon and thrive. So, like, the cost of living, I think, is um, the same everywhere. But completely different issues so and sisters i feel so lucky to represent sisters it's just one of my favorite uh places uh, their uh, fire insurance rates are doubling mm-hmm. but in sisters 70 percent of the homes are actually owned in cash or they're owned outright and so there's not a mortgage that's forcing you to have fire insurance so what keeps me up at night is that people are going to oh, drop yeah. their insurance yeah. right. because the rates are doubling even when People have firewise and they do all the things. And so for sisters, the question is, is the federal government going to underwrite insurance policies? Like, how are we going to bring those down? Um, how can we make sure insurance companies stay in the market? But also for our seniors that live there, their their asset is their home. Yes. And their income is staying the same. Why costs are just going through the roof. So that's what I hear the most from sisters. Um, you know, and Ben, the most I hear about is e-bikes. Um, by far. Interesting. Uh, I think that is probably what I've gotten the most emails about. Well, looking at now school starting, and I, it's, it's such a different look. Like, there's so many kids going to school on e-bikes. I mean, I, I come in on Mount Washington Drive, so I'm right near where everybody's coming from the Butte to Summit, and I can understand the concern. Those, um, it's They're rampant. It, it's, it is. And, you know, we did a, a, you know, Megan Perkins and I have been, or Councilor Perkins and I have been working on this issue, and we have a legislative proposal to bring forward. And when the governor was here, I was like, are you, do you know about our e-bike thing? And she's like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> and, I, and thing, I, I don't even know what to call it, uh, because. Swarm. Swarm, I think. <laughs> and I was, and I'm going to, like, I, my only idea is just to bring up a drone just so people can see. Um, but our proposal, you know, the law is very clear. You have to be 16 to be on an e-bike. We know that that's not happening. But also the law was written in 1997 mm-hmm. with the only intent of having people who are experiencing disabilities not be forced into the like lane with cars to say, like, they're they're riding bikes just like everybody else right. that they, they you know, help. 
But so they were in 1997, and our the attorney for transportation, she's amazing. She went back and listened to every single hearing so that we really understood because the law was very murky. And so it's very clear. So, I mean, and if, you're, if your kid is on an e-bike under the age of 16 right now, it's illegal. Um, but what our proposal is, because I do think kids should be on bikes. I do really believe that. I don't think that they need to be on a bike with a throttle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, these are yeah, mini motorcycles. They're mini motorcycles, and they can be souped up, which I didn't right. know. I feel like my whole summer was getting immersed in e-bike things that can happen. But so there is a product on the market now that can be souped. You can soup up an e-bike to 70 miles per hour. Oh, wow. And so that's not safe. And I, I would be happy for someone to bring forward an argument of why kids would need to be on a throttle bike but pedal assist that can get you going a little further no they're great and you're not worrying about the same safety in the aftermarket because how do we even regulate aftermarket stuff like there's just no way to to do that um but ultimately when i see kids on bikes and they're at school but they're at school they're where we want them to be so how can we thread that needle and to Mm -hmm. me it's say you can be on pedal assist um that's great for everybody you got to wear a helmet um, we're introducing safety courses in our schools, um, but in talking to other people around with uh, e-bikes and kids around the nation, ours actually seems to be one of the most pre- like most prevalent um, in the country. Yeah, I, well, go ahead. No, uh, go ahead. Well, I think that um, they're they're just you you want people to be biking. I mean, I had a we I went to Denver and we rented some of those bikes a lot like the bird bikes we have here and it was pedal assist and we had a blast. It was easy to get around, didn't have a car. You're, you know, you're 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 getting a little health in with your tourism. Um they're great, but you know, I've also obviously you know, it's a, a more common occurrence here where you're driving and someone passes you in the bike lane, which is not really a very common occurrence prior to, you know, these throttled e-bikes. And, um, you know, I totally have always supported two-wheel transportation, but you can see why Bend is the poster child for this problem. And I, it, to me, it's about education. Even, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a regular bike rider, mm-hmm. and I am super cautious. I almost got ran over in a roundabout one day. And so I, but I know the rules of the road, and I think, so many people just don't know, and especially younger people, mm-hmm. they just don't know all the rules uh, for riding any kind of two-wheeled thing. And I just think we, I'm glad to hear that the at required education it could be a possibility in schools or whatever. Everybody needs to learn the rules of the road, no matter what you're on, because that's when you get in trouble. It's when, when somebody's not following the rules, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, and usually that's when there's a collision of some sort. And yeah, I've been dodging the the, e- the, the electric bike. <laughs> yeah, they're the, in the... the kids riding double on them, going right. up the oh, hill while yeah. trying to get and home, and they're passing me, and we're both in the bike lane, and they're passing, and there's a car. It, it, I have a panic attack. No, absolutely. Not for myself, but for the kids. For the kids. And, you know, honestly, I I get so many unique emails, so, like, not forum emails about this. And they all say, I'm just worried about the kids. Like, I'm, it's not like they're not anti-bikes. Yeah. They're just kind of yeah. worried about the kids. And this doesn't seem safe. Uh, as for the education, so prior till this year, we only had bike education in our Title I schools in Bend. And now they're, I mean, starting this month, they'll be in all of the schools. Because um, bike safety is bike safety, whether you're on an e-bike or yep. on a regular bike. Um, but I mean, when you talk to the police eight months ago, this didn't this issue didn't even exist. Yeah, it's one of those things, though, where, you know, as, 
it's unfortunate, but it's it's just not something I think government's going to solve either. I mean, you can put all the education mm-hmm. programs in place, and but it's a value system. It's it's going to come down to families. It's going to come down to like mm-hmm. being able to point to unfortunately, you know, tragic incidences and and wrecks and people learning. Like it's there. I mean, even when you talk about this issue, people don't take it very seriously. No. They think it's kind of kind of kind of cool bike, you know, a little pedal assist, but mm-hmm. they don't understand the swarm. And it, I think people are starting to get on, but it's really going to come down to, you know, families yeah, realizing like they needed point. to, they need to do it. I got, I mean, this is one of those ones where we, we've talked to other people. We talked to the commute options person. I'm thinking you, you can't go and stop them. They're, plus their kids, their frontal lobe isn't working yeah. right. You know, <laughs> yes. they're just like. Yeah. They, they really shouldn't be driving until they're <laughs> right. 30, if you right. want to be honest about it. I, I, right. A mom of older grandchildren. Yes, right. <laughs> I mean, I exactly. The brain isn't fully formed, but like get moving, just be safe. And yeah. you know, I get that a lot of it's infrastructure. But my my lane, I guess no pun intended, is the <laughs> legislative part. Right. right? Like, and so once we get the law clear, then our transportation right. package can follow the law. Right. Yeah. But until that exists, we just have to do one step and, you know, one foot in front of the other. And I know people want to see sweeping changes, but um, we got to get the laws cleared up first. Do we have time for one more quick question? Because yeah. we, we talked about Sisters and Ben, but what's the biggest issue in Redmond? Uh, cost of living. Mm. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, cost of living. Um, I mean, it is just, I mean, it's so expensive. It's so expensive to live here, and uh, you know wages aren't keeping up with the cost of living. Well, and Redmond was supposed to be that community where you could keep up with the cost of living, and it was going to be that bedroom community of Bend. And you know, and initially we we did have a lot of a lot of source employees who lived in Redmond and did the commute. But increasingly, when you look at the housing prices there, and the you know that livability and the way it, it it's gotten a lot nicer over the years is also coming with cost increases absolutely i mean it's difficult you know the interest rate went up you know what back in june i believe Mm -hmm. and house prices usually go down with that but with the interest rates went up so did our house prices went back up to 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 peak 2021 prices i mean that's just not how the economics is or as the kids say the math isn't mathing um that's just typically not the trajectory well, we got uh, time for one more thing, I think, which is uh, you got a pretty interesting trip coming up, pretty yes. intellectually stimulating <laughs> uh, travels. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Denmark. Yeah, so I am headed to Denmark with um, a few re- representatives. Uh, it's a bipartisan uh, group that is going to see you know, a lot of the things they do in Denmark around renewable energy. Um, they are so far ahead of us on, on so many things. I mean, one of really innovative things they have is called Copenhill, which is actually trash incineration, but they turned it into a ski slope. Wow. So it's really cool. You can ski down it, but under underneath it is they're actually incinerating trash and, you know, turning it into energy. Um, and, you know, as we look at our landfill, we got to make some choices. Right. Um, Burying trash, it, it, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind, but there are consequences for it. And I know that incinerating trash, it really looks ominous, right? There's like steam coming out. But there's a new and different way that we can look at trash, the way that we can capture methane. Um, and Denmark is doing some of the most creative things around energy. But I think what makes them really unique is they, they're they not just dependent on a few – they're not just dependent on, you know, 
renewables or or natural gas, they kind of take an all of the above approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really good at turning those into, you know, a renewable resource of energy. And I kind of believe that's what we need to do here. The wind, the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. Like we need to figure out how to have renewable sources for all the types of energy we have. And that's the only way to really keep the cost down. That's great. Well, Emerson, thank you for taking some time today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ben Don't Break podcast powered by The Source Weekly. To read, hear, and see more of what we do, go to bensource.com.